This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces, to claim your offer. For this episode, I'm recommending Spooky Action at a Distance by George Musser. I've got a real weakness for books that explain incredibly complex concepts from science in terms that are understandable and engaging to a layperson like me. That sort of ability lies at the heart of great teaching, and Musser's book positively blew my mind. In it, this award-winning Scientific American editor makes the case that the very concept of space, of distance and location, may just be an illusion. That might sound kind of new-agey, but Musser brings to bear all kinds of concepts from physics and quantum mechanics in a way that actually made a certain kind of sense to me, even if it did make my head hurt afterwards. If you're looking for a book that will literally alter the way you look at the universe, Spooky Action at a Distance is a good bet. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One more time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg, and this is Season 2, Episode 2, The Women Behind the Father of Progressive Education. If you're an average American who doesn't have a particular interest in the history and practice of education, you probably haven't heard the name Francis W. Parker. And even if you are an educator, you might not have heard of him still, despite his importance in the development of what we now call progressive or constructivist or student-centered education. If you've heard of anyone in the history of progressive American education, you've probably heard of John Dewey. Yet Dewey wrote in The New Republic in 1930 that Francis W. Parker, quote, more than any one person, was the father of the progressive educational movement, end quote. Yet Parker just doesn't get as much press as folks like Dewey or Horace Mann, even though he arguably did more than anyone else to shape the modern way we think about how children learn, which I do have to note is not the same as shaping the modern way in which schools actually teach. But in the fight to make the way schools work match the way children learn, Parker is an unsung hero, who in turn was able to do his work thanks to some even less sung heroes, or rather, heroines. I'm going to argue in this episode that Parker's greatest asset as an educational reformer might not have been his radical mindset, so much as his savvy in linking up with some very influential and charismatic women as both patrons and protégés, who were the ones who actually brought his ideas to life and improved upon them. So, who is this man who either had such good judgment or such good fortune to surround himself with such highly capable women? Frances Whalen Parker was born in 1837 in Bedford, New Hampshire, and became a village teacher at only 16 years old. Many of his students were actually older and had learned more of the curriculum than he had. I remember I had a hard enough time beginning my own student teaching at age 19 way back when, so I tipped my hat to Parker. He bounced around several teaching jobs in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and was made principal of a school in Illinois at age 21. He makes me feel like kind of a late bloomer. Parker had a similarly meteoric rise through the ranks of the Union Army once he enlisted during the Civil War, going from private to lieutenant colonel within four years. I found frustratingly little consistency among various accounts of Parker's military career. He may or may not have been a POW at one point. He may or may not have taken a bullet to the neck if 
any of my listeners want to go down the rabbit hole of Parker's military career and find me some truly authoritative stuff, you're more than encouraged. For me, it's not Parker's wartime record, but what he did and whom he did it with after the war that's important. After the war, Parker became the head of another school, this time the Normal School in Dayton, Ohio. Normal schools were what we called schools of education back in the 1800s, doing teacher training before that was all professionalized and taken up by the universities, where teachers from then on in got trained by people like me. Normal schools were more like today's lab schools. Teachers learned their craft through actually working with kids in a classroom under the supervision of a more experienced teacher critic. Admission at the Dayton Normal School was contingent upon agreeing to teach for at least two years in the Dayton Public Schools upon graduation. The Dayton Normal School had just been established, and under Parker's watch, enrolled only female students. This was a change from the first normal schools in Massachusetts and New York, which enrolled mainly men. Although Parker was the supervising principal, in practice, the principals of his school were also all women. It might be a stretch to call Parker a proto-feminist, but some of his best friends definitely were. One such friend was Elizabeth Peabody. She was born 43 years before Parker to a much more well-off family. Her mother, also somewhat confusingly named Elizabeth Peabody, was a teacher at an all-girls school which she ran from her own home, and Elizabeth was interested in big ideas with a capital B and I, as well as how to teach those ideas to others from an early age. The roster of her family and friends reads like an all-star team of American 19th century intellectuals. Elizabeth was the oldest of three sisters. The middle sister, Mary, went on to marry Horace Mann, and it's no exaggeration to say that the two of them, along with Bronson Alcott, were basically responsible for convincing America to start adopting widespread public education. Her younger sister, Sophia, became one of America's most famous early feminists, not to mention a famous painter, although in the still somewhat sexist American historical mindset, Sophia is probably best known for marrying famous novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne. For anyone who remembers that kind of dry essay at the beginning of Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, entitled The Custom House, Elizabeth was the one who got Hawthorne that cushy custom house job. She also apparently had a mad crush on him, and in a pathos-filled drama worthy of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Angelica Schuyler, actively kept herself out of the way of his marriage to her sister Sophia. Elizabeth's family social circle also included Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and Oliver Wendell Holmes. So yeah, she grew up hobnobbing with the best and brightest, and earned her place among those best and brightest herself. Elizabeth, like her sisters, taught a great deal and wrote a great deal. But unlike them, she never married, which allowed her to put her full attention onto intellectual pursuits. She was the creator of the first American kindergartens. She had read up on Friedrich Froebel's work with Pestalozzi, he's featured in an episode from last season, and decided to replicate it in the United States. Before then, no one in America was really all that interested in the education of kids younger than six, and certainly hadn't developed anything like play-based education. Elizabeth was by no means shy about promoting these ideas around the country, and when she met Francis W. Parker, remember him? When he was running the Dayton Normal School, Peabody got Parker to drink the Kool-Aid. Less than three years after taking over the school, Parker was going off to Berlin and Italy and Switzerland at Elizabeth's urging. He had a small inheritance that he used to bankroll the trip, and what he read there blew his mind. After diving deep into Rousseau and Froebel and Pestalozzi and Herbart, Parker came back convinced that, surprise, surprise, students actually learn more when they are personally interested and invested in what they're learning, and that involving their existing knowledge and interests made for more thorough learning experiences. Parker began to teach writing not only through phonics, but through fun rhymes, and always had his students write about subjects that interested them. 
Parker wanted all children to have their own slate boards so they could write and draw freely without fear of mistakes. In the late 1870s, Parker got a chance to try out these methods Elizabeth Peabody had introduced him to on a large scale when he got a job as the superintendent of schools in Quincy, Massachusetts. This is where his approach evolved into the Quincy method, which de-emphasized rote memorization, did away with harsh disciplinary punishments, and involved a lot of students working cooperatively in groups. Parker did a lot of what we would nowadays call hands-on, project-based learning. One lesson reputedly had students digging up chicken bones in the backyard where Parker had buried them to learn about dinosaur excavations. Parker was also not a big fan of grades, feeling they stymied actual learning. To sum it up, basically, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, a lot of what I say could have come right out of this guy's mouth, assuming someone traveled back in time and gave him his own podcast. Even without a podcast, Parker was very publicly vocal about his philosophies, and not just about education either. He frequently spoke out against the U.S. Cavalry's slaughter of Native Americans, so much so that he got drummed right out of Quincy. He'd had a lot of critics beforehand who didn't like his shaking up the educational establishment, and weren't persuaded by the evidence he showed of student learning on state-ordered tests. And this was the perfect opportunity for them to get rid of him on grounds of lack of patriotism. After this, Parker moved around to a couple of other schools, particularly in Boston, where he faced continual fierce opposition from the educational establishment that saw his methods as lax and unprofessional. Parker wrote five books and eventually became most famous for his work at a University of Chicago lab. And here again, his talent for crossing paths with wealthy, influential women of learning served him very well. It was in 1889 that Parker became something of a charity case for Anita Blaine. Not to be confused with the sultry vampire-hunting heroine Anita Blake in Laurel K. Hamilton's best-selling series of novels, Hey, I've got to showcase my geek cred somewhere. No, this was Anita McCormick Blake, born in 1866, daughter of Cyrus McCormick, the guy who invented the reaping machine, although some historians say a slave he owned actually had a lot of the ideas, and started the company that would become International Harvester. So yeah, there was a lot of money at her disposal. Anita attended the elite but surprisingly progressive Miss Kirkland's Academy, so she was primed for thinking about progressive education. Like Pestalozzi before her, she became convinced of education's power to help lift people out of poverty, and bankrolled and directed so-called mission schools for educating poor women, and would gather them in the evenings to help them learn sewing and cooking skills. Anita McCormick married a wealthy railroad baron named Emmons Blaine, but he died at age 35, leaving her a 23-year-old widow. The same year, interestingly enough, that she began working with Parker, who was not even 30 years old yet himself. Like many of today's education reformers, Having a child of her own put the issue of designing effective schooling into stark relief for Anita, who started her own kindergarten in the style of Elizabeth Peabody. Like Parker, she couldn't stand how children were being educated in deadeningly boring ways, asked to recite by rote from dull textbooks and peppered with non-stop lectures and exams. But remember, a lot of people, including powerful politicians and school board members, believed in, or at the very least had a vested interest in, that existing system of schooling, and they were making Parker's life a living heck. In order to free Parker from this continual harassment, the young widowed Miss Blaine endowed a private school for Parker and his faculty. It became known as the Chicago Institute, and it taught not only its teachers, but also the students who enrolled in its lab school, how to do interdisciplinary, hands-on education, featuring things that we'd now call project-based learning or makerspaces. Anita Blake's motivations were both lofty, creating quality education for the masses, and also very personal. Remember, she wanted her own son and his friends to be able to attend a school that truly engaged and excited them about learning. And if there wasn't one around, then gosh darn it, she was going to make one. And Parker was happy to oblige her in running it. 
Blaine, by the way, wasn't the only wealthy and influential woman to support this school. None other than Nobel Prize-winning Hull House creator Jane Addams lent her support to the school as well. Blaine was the one, however, who sponsored Parker's popular lecture series, as well as provided the funding to publish his famous book, School and Society. If you go to Ed School, you're very likely to find it on your reading list. When Parker's school got incorporated into the burgeoning University of Chicago, Blaine provided, on top of everything she'd spent on Parker already, a $30,000 gift to the school, which works out, if you're curious, to about $850,000 in today's money. So, yes, it is quite fair to say that without Peabody and Blaine, Francis Parker would be even more of a historical footnote than he is today. But there are still two more women behind the man who we need to talk about, Zaniah Baber and Flora Cook. Flora Cook was sort of a grandest student of Parker's. Her formative educator was Zaniah Baber, who had been trained by the Cook County Normal School, which Parker ran before Blaine helped him start the Chicago Institute, and which later evolved into what we know today as Chicago State University. Baber had quit a prestigious position as a private school principal in order to get trained there, and she eventually went on to academia, particularly geography. She founded the Geographic Society of Chicago, apparently, but not before training teachers at the Hillman School, where, among other things, she promoted the value of field trips. One of Baber's students there was a young transplant from Youngstown, Ohio, named Flora Cook. Cook recounts how, when harsh weather made the trip back to her home untenable, quote, I spent many nights with Baber and received a lifelong inspiration and enthusiasm for teaching children. Indeed, I had two years of intensive professional training, with much of it given after midnight, by this zealot, Zania Baber, end quote. Baber, still in contact with and respected by her mentor Parker, convinced him to invite her own protege, Cook, to teach at the Chicago Normal School. Apparently, Parker was reluctant. In Cook's memoirs, she writes that she overheard him say, quote, She is yours, Anaya. I wash my hands of her. See what you can make of her. Unquote. But it was Cook, rather, who made a great deal of Parker's ideas. She was a much better writer, it turned out, and public speaker than Parker, and was able to take his ideas on the road and sell them to a lay audience in a way that Parker never could. To his credit, Parker eventually recognized this and grew to value Cook for it. Ironically, Cook always characterized herself as having stage fright, although she may have just been being modest. Nevertheless, she relates anecdotes of Parker having to practically shove her out on stage. Quote, you need the courage, he once told her, to be rude, end quote. But Cook apparently had that courage in spades, so much so that Parker insisted she come with him when he began the Chicago Institute, when Parker went on to an appointment at the University of Chicago, and later took ill and died. Cook went on to become principal of the newly founded Francis W. Parker School, created in his memory, a school whose creation was financed, of course, by Anita Blaine. Under Cook's leadership, the school eventually severed its ties with the university and struck out on its own as a model of progressive education. Cook not only kept the school running according to Parker's ideals, but she expanded on them and took them to the next level. She insisted on curating the school's students to be economically and even racially diverse. This was the 1910s and 1920s, mind you and ran the school democratically, with teachers and even students given a voice at the table for school policy. Cook wrote a great deal, particularly about literacy education, and edited a volume of teacher preparation essays written by her teachers at her direction. Despite being dependent, as all private schools are, upon donors, Cook was not afraid to stand up to them when it came to matters of principle. For example, she fought back against a group of wealthy parents who demanded the expulsion of a student who had written a pacifist essay during World War I. Cook even stood up to Washington, D.C., where former Mississippi governor and now senator and admitted Ku Klux Klan member Theodore Bilbo had established himself as the bane of education. Senator Bilbo 
And if you Google his name, you won't find anyone who looks less like a friendly hobbit. During his tenure as governor, fired 179 faculty members at Mississippi State Universities, and once boasted about how many college presidents he was able to fire in a single day. Later in his career, Senator Bilbo spoke out against voting rights for African Americans, opposed anti-lynching legislation, and called the autobiography of Richard Wright, quote, the dirtiest, filthiest, lousiest, most obscene piece of writing that I have ever seen in print, end quote. Yeah, Bilbo was a real piece of work, and Cook took him on publicly, and the two of them exchanged a heated series of letters that was nothing less than the forerunner of today's Twitter wars. Cook fearlessly took Bilbo to task for his white supremacist views, as well as his anti-labor positions, throughout 1945, when, by the way, she was 80 years old. Cook lived eight more years before dying of a heart attack in 1953. Bilbo, incidentally, had died six years earlier, at the mere age of 70. Yeah, I'm that petty. The Parker School in Chicago is still around, by the way, and many other schools took on Francis Parker's name in later years in New York, Illinois, Indiana, California, and Massachusetts. That last one is a charter school that uses Parker's methods, started by Ted Sizer, who's someone else I really need to do an episode on, especially since I once worked with the man for a while about 20 years ago. Yeah, I name dropped too. Besides having schools named after him, Parker is mainly remembered as the guy who got John Dewey his start. Dewey was a barely financially afloat philosophy professor who came to Parker in Chicago for advice, and then went on to swipe, uh, I mean be inspired by, Parker's ideas and popularize progressive education throughout America. But even though Dewey tops the reading list in ed school, we might never have heard Hyde nor hear of him, or Parker for that matter. And worse, their ideas might never have made it into mainstream education as much as they have, if not for the many remarkable and influential women who both inspired and advanced Parker's ideas. While progressive education the way that Parker and these women envisioned it is still unfortunately not the norm in American schooling, we are at least at the point where we recognize the value of student engagement, hands-on learning, and relating material to kids' own lives. I'd argue that any truly effective and inspiring teacher does this already, every day, and if any of us has benefited from having such a teacher in our own educational experience, we might just want to thank Colonel Parker, and Miss Peabody, Mrs. Blaine, Miss Baber, and Miss Cook. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, and the grand tradition of underfunded public schools will be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. In many schools in India, Self-defense classes for girls aren't just electives, they're requirements for graduation. This is one way in which education leaders in the country are attempting to stem the tide of the rising number of crimes against women. Some feminist educators in India, however, argue that boys should also be required to take classes and how to treat women with respect, and how to stand up to their fellow men who would seek to harm women. That's all for now. Bye.